Welcome to Fierce City, a podcast where we will talk about the people, places and events that shaped the greatest city in the world. I'm Satu. And I'm PJ. And we are your hosts on this journey to discover the lesser known history of London. If you close your eyes and think of London, your mind probably conjures up images of great buildings like the Houses of Parliament and the Gherkin. Then, if I ask you to think about what comes to mind when I say the Prime Minister of the United Kingdom, I wouldn't be surprised if what you see in your mind's eye is a great statesperson standing in front of a black door assigned with the number 10, probably on a grey London day. Number 10 Downing Street is a house like no other. It's a fairly modest building that is the official home for the Prime Minister, but it is also the engine room for British politics. The story of Downing Street is full to the brim with tales of royal gifts, dodgy builders, political skirmishes and larger-than-life inhabitants. To do this enormous topic any justice, we are not going to try and squeeze in everything into one episode. In this episode, we are going to look at how Downing Street came to be, charting its history before it became all about politics, leading up to the time that it became the home of our Prime Minister. We will also tell some of our favourite stories of its sometime residents through to the dawn of the Victorian era. So, come along with us as we journey back to discover the history of Downing Street, part one. If you were allowed to walk down its hallowed cobbles, you'd see that Downing Street is a modest road of only about 160 metres long. The streets are cul-de-sac, with the main entrance coming off of Whitehall and a small path on the far end leading to St James's Park. On the right-hand side, you have the terrace of famous houses encompassing the 10 Downing Street building, and on the other side of the street, there is the giant Commonwealth and Foreign Office headquarters. Downing Street, and in particular number 10 Downing Street, isn't famous because it has any particularly grand buildings by London standards, or because it's the site of any one outstanding event. In the same way that we say Buckingham Palace has put out a statement, the name Downing Street is used interchangeably with the office of the Prime Minister of the United Kingdom. The Prime Minister today is the person who heads up the British government, somebody who, amongst all others, is responsible for steering the ship. Lord Melbourne, a favourite Prime Minister of Queen Victoria's, explained to her in 1841 that How the power of Prime Ministry grew up into its present form it is difficult to trace precisely. He was spot on. Sir Robert Walpole, who is generally agreed to have been the first Prime Minister, said, I unequivocally deny that I am sole and Prime Minister. In the 18th century, the term Prime Minister was actually more of a term of abuse than honour, implying that the individual had tried to get above their station. The monarch was a divine ruler, and the position of head of state fell to no one other than the king or queen. However, by the 19th century, the office of the Prime Minister was a political reality, if not technically a constitutional one. The title bandied about was not Prime Minister, but rather the First Lord of the Treasury and Lord Privy Seal. So technically, 10 Downing Street is the official residence of the First Lord of the Treasury, rather than the Prime Minister, and there's a plaque on the front door of Number 10 to that effect. Amazingly, the term Prime Minister did not become official until as late as 1905. Its first mention in the law was not until the Chequers Estate Act of 1917, which specified the Buckinghamshire mansion of Chequers as the prime ministerial residence. We will start our chronicle of the land that became Downing Street in the 16th century, when the area of Westminster was already a focal point of government in Britain. 
On the marshy land around the old river Tyburn, rulers had been building their palaces since the days of King Canute. By the 16th century, at the heart of Westminster, was York Place, a house which Cardinal Wolsey acquired and redeveloped in the early 1500s. The remodelled home was so impressive that Henry VIII decided that it should be his main London residence. When Wolsey was beheaded, York Place became Henry's, which he renamed to the far more regal title of Whitehall Palace. Eventually, the road it stood on also became known as Whitehall. The palace was a symbol of Tudor decadence and featured all of the 16th century mod cons, such as indoor tennis courts, a bowling green and a pit for cockfighting. Both the tennis court and the cockpit were located in the area that is now Downing Street. The earliest building we know to have stood where Downing Street is today was a brewery owned by the monks of the Abbey of Abingdon. This brew house was called the Axe and was located within the palace borders. Handy. The land's use as a brewery seems to have ended around the time Henry expanded the palace, and in 1547 the land changed use when Henry granted to one Everard Everard, a goldsmith and jeweller, a lease of the land for him to work there without having to pay any rent. Around the cockfighting pit, which was a distinctive octagonal building, various other buildings grew up. These became the residence of the Keeper of the Palace, who, in Queen Elizabeth's reign, was a Sir Thomas Knivet. At the age of 36, he was gifted the land which is now Downing Street for the remainder of his life. Knivet was a hero of the Tudor age, and in the early hours of the 5th of November 1605, after discovering a suspected plot and being dispatched to investigate by King James I, it was Knivet who arrested Guy Fawkes as he was trying to sneak out of Parliament. Knivet didn't occupy the Downing Street property alone, and he was temporarily kicked out in 1603 to make way for the king's four-year-old son, Prince Charles, and then later, Princess Elizabeth. After the princess moved out, he shared the property again with another keeper of the palace, Lord Rochester, who had to move out because his wife didn't like it, there being too many doors and few keys. In 1622, Knivet died, leaving the property to his wife, who herself died only a couple of weeks later. The whole estate went to Mrs Knivet's widowed niece Elizabeth Hampton, who moved into and expanded the old half-timbered axe brew house that bordered Knivet House, with the result that it all became known as Hampton House, a huge mansion with a grand hall, dining rooms and a massive garden. Foreshadowing the political intrigue that would later define Downing Street, Hampton House was home to a family who could not have been more front and centre of the British politics of the 17th century. Elizabeth Hampton was Oliver Cromwell's aunt, and her own son was an MP and key player in the English Civil War. Cromwell himself, along with his wife, lived in Knivet's old house from 1550 to 1554, before the law of Whitehall and its regal grandeur got too much for him. After he died in 1658, Mrs Cromwell came back and stayed in the house until the restoration of the monarchy in 1660. Hampton House and its occupant Elizabeth survived the Civil War and the Restoration, with Elizabeth living there until she died in 1665. There were drawbacks for her. After the year 1660, if she wanted to go to church on Sunday at St Margaret's by Westminster Abbey, she would have to have walked past the mouldering head of her nephew that had been dug up and stuck on a spike on the roof of Westminster Hall. In the later years of Elizabeth Hampton's life, legal dealings were going on behind the scenes and the king's interest in the land was sold by the Crown in 1651. 
And so, when Elizabeth Hampton died, one George Downing, the namesake for our Downing Street, came onto the scene. Downing Street isn't named after George Downing because he's fondly remembered, and he never even lived there. Downing is remembered by all accounts, including that of his own mother, as a truly awful man. Violent, corrupt, mean and disloyal. Samuel Pepys calls him a rogue, and Andrew Marvell called him a Judas. Downing was born in Ireland in 1623 and moved to America at the age of 15, going on to become one of the nine students in Harvard University's first graduating class. He flirted with a career as a preacher, and when he eventually came back to England, he served as a military preacher at first, but by the end of the Civil War, Downing was Oliver Cromwell's chief spymaster. He was made ambassador to The Hague, where he took the time to make sure no English ministers prayed for the exiled king. He earned himself a fearful reputation for violence and intimidation. When things were looking bad for the Republicans in 1659, Downing promptly switched sides and pledged allegiance to the Crown. He held various high-profile positions, but was deeply disliked by the King, not least because of the banning of the praying for him. When Charles II was warned that if Downing was sent back to The Hague, the mob would murder him, the King smiled and basically said, oh well. When Downing got there and found his life in danger, he ran for it, and for that desertion he was imprisoned in the Tower of London. But he was soon out and making plans for his land near Whitehall. Since Downing bought the underlying interest in the land 20 years previously, his plan had always been to rebuild. By the time he took possession, he had secured permission to build new houses. During the course of the 1680s, the existing Hampton House was demolished and replaced with terraced houses. The miserly Downing did not live to see his redevelopment at Downing Street thrive, dying in 1684. Meanwhile, whilst Downing Street was being constructed, the Palace of Whitehall was also being renovated by the ubiquitous London architect and fierce city fave Christopher Wren. Downing had commissioned Wren to design his new houses at the same time. Between 1690 and 1700, fires besieged the near Whitehall Palace, destroying everything except the banqueting house. The diarist John Evelyn noted, Whitehall burnt, nothing but walls and ruins left. So, as ever, the oversubscribed Christopher Wren probably had bigger fish to fry and will forgive him for the shoddy work at Downing Street, which was cheaply built with poor foundations on boggy ground. Winston Churchill described his sometime home as shaky and lightly built by the profiteering contractor whose name they bear. And so, by the dawn of the 18th century, Downing Street, in more or less its current form, came into being. Downing Street started its life with a bit of neighbourly dispute. The neighbour in question was quite a big deal, and she was the Countess of Lichfield and the daughter of Charles II. The Countess, who had lived in Sir Nivet's old house since she was a 12-year-old newlywed, and I'll just let that sink in, took umbrage at the shoddily built terrace of houses being built so close to her royal pad. The king sympathised with his daughter's complaint, and was reported to have said, I think that it is a very reasonable thing that other houses should not look into your house without your permission, and this note will be sufficient for Mr Surveyor to build up your wall as high as you please. Mr Surveyor being Christopher Wren. In any event, it would seem that the Countess came to terms with her neighbouring buildings, and for the next 30 years, the street became home to several distinguished residents. For most of the 1700s, number 10 Downing Street was actually numbered number 5 Downing Street, 
And the last private resident of number 10 as we know it now was reported to be a gentleman named Mr. Scroop. And in a little house next door lived Mr. Chicken, who moved out around 1735 after a little pressure from somebody who would go on to become the first Prime Minister of Britain, Mr. Robert Walpole. In 1732, a surprisingly reluctant Walpole was gifted both number 5 Downing Street, as it was then, and the grand house behind it, by King George II. Walpole had already been Prime Minister for 11 years, which was plenty of time to personally benefit from the position. He turned down the Downing Street houses as a personal gift and instead asked the King if they could be used as the official residence of the first Lord of the Treasury. Walpole didn't actually move in for another three years. He hired architect and designer William Kent to join together the Downing Street house with the old Nivet house behind it. The old entrance to the large house at the rear was on the Royal Horse Guards parade, but this was shut up and the door onto Downing Street became the only way in. Downing Street was handy for Parliament, but the house itself was inadequate. Accordingly, the dodgy Downing House would serve more as a passageway to the main house at the rear, which is where Kent's grand new rooms were located. The inside of the house is a mishmash of parts from different time periods, knocked through to form a big rambling building. William Kent clarified the inside by replacing many of the little staircases with the now famous central staircase, which today features pictures of all the past prime ministers dotted down the wall. He also gutted part of the building and imposed a new order on the house in general. Walpole also got hold of the leases for the neighbouring houses that were to become number 11 and number 12 Downing Street. Sadly, for future renovators, William Kent didn't dig his foundations any deeper than Downing had and went for wooden beams laid straight onto the boggy soil with foundations of only six feet in some places. This would work out to be very costly for the government over the next few hundred years. Robert Walpole was a wealthy and influential man and had grand estates elsewhere in the country, including Horton Hall in Norfolk, which William Kent also built. Nevertheless, Walpole used 10 Downing Street as his London digs when he was in town and worked and entertained from the home, with Parliament only being open for about four months a year. Downing Street as a road was quite a convivial place, with private boarding houses and several pubs. Walpole was an enthusiastic socialiser. He loved to throw parties, and even while he was in government, he employed a smuggler to bring him things from the continent so he wouldn't have to pay his own taxes. He used the upstairs of Downing Street to live, and the downstairs to work, setting up his office in the room that is now the cabinet room, situated by the brand new gardens. Walpole had started a fine tradition of deep and total corruption by assigning thousands of pounds of public funds to members of his family, including his mistress. By raiding the public funds, he built up a beautiful private art collection, including works by Rembrandt, Rubens, Velasquez and Van Dyck, which were hung on the walls of Downing Street. When he went, the paintings went with him, and he was so in debt when he died that his children sold them to Catherine the Great of Russia, who in no way lacked funds and she put them in the Hermitage in St. Petersburg. The next handful of residents were really no better. Sir Francis Dashwood was one such inhabitant, who was a founding member of rakish lad organisations like the Hellfire Club, and he was absolutely devoted to debauchery. He had a painting of himself dressed as a Franciscan monk, 
presumably to remind him of various outrages against religion he had performed, including having an orgy in a ruined abbey and whacking churchgoers with a whip. Amazingly, Dashwood didn't impose his taste on number 10, despite over-decorating all his other houses to breaking point with pretend ruins, temples and naughty statues. Dashwood presented only one budget to the House of Commons, which was laughed out by MPs, and led Dashwood to say, People will point at me and say, there goes the worst Chancellor of the Exchequer that had ever appeared. He taxed cider and he taxed beer, which eventually caused an anti-Dashwood riot. During the mid-18th century, Downing Street itself would see a period known as the Great Repair, with works running ten times over budget, with much of the expense coming from dealing with the house's bad foundations. The Morning Herald newspaper grumbled at the expense. So much has this extraordinary edifice cost this country, for one moiety of which sum a much better dwelling might have been purchased. William Pitt the Younger became Prime Minister in 1783, and he was keen to move into Number 10, which he described as the best summer townhouse possible. At just 24 years old, the House of Commons laughed when his appointment was announced, and no one thought it would last. However, Pitt stayed calm, and he was so popular with the public that the MPs started to lose their determination to oppose him. In the end, Pitt was Prime Minister for almost 18 years. Pitt's household was pretty lavish. He had 27 servants when he came to number 10, and had sunk himself £45,000 into debt. But that didn't stop him serving Peacock and Lark at the dinner table. Later in his life, in an effort to reduce costs and get a handle on the running of the house, Pitt brought to Downing Street a housekeeper, his eccentric and fun-loving 27-year-old niece Hester Stanhope. Unfortunately, she wasn't really made for this job, and the entertaining bill only got higher. Pitt's drinking, supposedly for medicinal reasons, intensified and went up to four bottles of port a day. On one memorable occasion, he threw up out of the door behind the speaker's chair, holding the door open so he could still hear the debate. Hester herself was a character. Equipped with a quick wit and a bad temper, she was extremely unconventional for the time. She was rude to the Prince of Wales, who really didn't take a joke well, and snubbed the women she met through Pitt, yawning loudly when she found their conversation boring. Pitt was never really a well man, and in 1806 the burden of work and lack of sleep brought on by the intense challenge of the Napoleonic Wars brought him low. Hester claimed that he had got only three to four hours of sleep a night and hardly had time to eat during the day. He had one last sociable dinner arranged at number 10 for the birthday of Queen Charlotte, but sadly he didn't make it. Travelling home from a trip to Bath, he became too ill to travel and didn't reach Downing Street. Hester hosted the sad dinner alone, and a few days later heard of the death of Pitt. Hester went on to live a life that was bigger than Downing Street's walls could hold. Four years after she left the house, she decided to travel in the Middle East. Along the way, she encountered Lord Byron in Athens and was later shipwrecked and left with nothing, after which she adopted male dress and shaved her head. She was an adventurer and explorer and a source of bafflement and horror to 19th century society. After William Pitt, Downing Street would play host to several doddering politicians, but by the early 19th century, it had a man named Spencer Percival in the hot seat as Prime Minister. Percival was a man who believed in prophecies. He'd written a whole pamphlet on the topic and was prone to premonitions. In May 1812, 
he had a strange feeling of doom. He wrote his will and gave it to his wife for safekeeping, apparently making a comment about his impending fate. He wasn't wrong, and, spoiler alert, he was the only Prime Minister in British history to have been assassinated. It was the afternoon of the 11th of May. Important matters relating to pottery, of all things, were being discussed in the House, but Prime Minister Percival hadn't yet arrived. An MP popped out to go and get him from nearby Downing Street, but met him in Parliament Street on the way. They hurried back together. Standing in the entrance to the lobby of the Houses of Parliament was a man in a brown suit. He raised the gun in his hand and fired into Percival's chest at almost point-blank range. Someone present described seeing a small curling wreath like the breath of a cigar rising above Percival's head. I saw him reel back against the ledge on the inside of the door and then make an impulsive rush as it were to reach the entrance of the house on the opposite side. I saw him totter forward, not halfway, and drop dead between the four pillars in the centre of the space, with a slight trace of blood issuing from his lips. Percival's last words were, Oh, I have been murdered. The murderer, a man named John Bellingham, didn't even try to escape. MP General Gascoigne tackled him so hard he nearly broke the murderer's arm, and other MPs piled on too. The shot and the screams were heard in both Houses of Parliament, and within minutes the rumour went through the houses that someone was shot. The murderer John Bellingham had lived an unlucky life. A bankrupt, he failed at various careers due to lack of money, his house burned down, and he had an unhappy marriage. Eventually he was imprisoned for debt in Russia. While he sat in jail, he stewed on his misfortune, and lobbied many politicians, including Percival, to get him released. He went to the Houses of Parliament that day, ready to kill any of the men who had let him down. Percival was unlucky enough to be the first one to come along. Bellingham had a quick trial, and was hanged one week after the killing. Conspiracy theories ran wild in London. Perhaps this was the work of the technology-hating Luddites. Percival had passed a law making it a capital offence to break a machine. He'd also enforced the ban on slavery for British citizens, annoying some very wealthy people. Prime Minister Percival's body was taken back to Downing Street, where it lay for five days before he and his family vacated the house forever. He'd made sure that Mrs Percival had his will, but its contents weren't much good to her. Apparently it was said that the provision that Mr Percival had left for his family was so moderate as to not leave a possibility of their living in a style that suited their rank. Parliament, however, made sure Mrs Percival was taken care of, with a £2,000 a year pension and many tens of thousands of pounds in grants to his children. The family found a new home in Ealing, and by 1813, the Downing Street house was ready to put the past behind it. In 1815, a boisterous fellow called Frederick Prosperity Robinson took over as Chancellor of the Exchequer. Robinson moved into number 10 with his wife and their eight-year-old daughter. He spent time and money upgrading the house, which he sort of had to because he had no furniture or paintings to put in it. Just before moving in, he'd made some unpopular moves with the public, and the public had responded by breaking into his house and smashing up all his belongings. Robinson hired John Soane to improve Downing Street with a grand new double-height wood-panelled dining room. The Office of Works observed gloomily that the house requires very frequent repairs. 
This lucky Chancellor had the riches of the Napoleonic war spoils to spend, and he really went for it, building half a million pounds worth of new churches. After the false start that led to the destruction of practically everything he owned, he learned his lesson. He made himself popular with lavish public spending, such as cutting the window tax in half and reducing the taxes on rum, wine, sugar and silk. In other words, all the necessities. He also set about creating a cultural life for the capital, along the lines of his own taste, which luckily for us was quite all right. He bought for the nation the collection that founded the National Gallery, advised on the design of the gallery building in Trafalgar Square, and arranged money for the British Museum to be built. One little snag with all this great work was that Robinson wasn't very good at maths, and he let other people prepare his budgets. After the death of his young daughter, Robinson began to feel overwhelmed and asked to be made a lord to get out from under his workload. The Napoleonic money was running out and banks began to fail, leading to riots and disorder. Thousands of desperate people were suddenly without work as wages tumbled and employers ran out of money and they went to beg for food on the streets of London. The Prime Minister, Lord Liverpool, was having none of it and told Robinson sternly. This is the first session you will have had with any real financial difficulty, and I do not think it would be to your credit that you should appear to shrink from it. Luckily for Robinson, though, Liverpool had a stroke six weeks later and died, with his successor Canning taking on the job. But Canning was only Prime Minister for nine months, dying from catching a common cold. The next Downing Street resident of note was the famous Duke of Wellington, the great surviving hero of the Napoleonic Wars. Wellington had a grand house of his own and moved into number 10 only because Apsley House was being renovated. He had held many senior positions in the years since his military career and knew Downing Street well. In 1805, Downing Street had been the place where he had his only ever meeting with Admiral Nelson, who he recognised by his missing arm. It was only a few weeks before the Battle of Trafalgar, when Nelson was killed, and it was apparently a somewhat tense meeting, as Nelson didn't recognise Wellington at first, and spoke to him condescendingly. As Wellington was nicknamed the Iron Duke, you can imagine his face at being treated like a lackey. He could also be a dangerous man. He fought a pistol duel while living at Downing Street. The thing with duels at this time is people were keen to fight them, but not because they took them very seriously. Everyone pretended they were to the death, but this hardly ever happened. On this occasion, Wellington's opponent, Lord Winchelsea, started to realise Wellington might actually kill him, and at that point he panicked. Quaking in his boots, he didn't even raise his pistol, but sent over a note that he apologised, and could they forget the whole thing? Wellington grudgingly agreed. When the Victorian era dawned, the Prime Minister was absent from Number 10 Downing Street. Lord Melbourne was Prime Minister, and he was more interested in parties than politics, with no need to live rent-free at the Prime Ministerial residence. And so Downing Street would remain unoccupied by the higher ranks of politics, and rather it became home to a rolling assortment of secretaries, so they could be close to the action for cabinet meetings and other official business. One such person was Edmund Drummond, who worked for Robert Peel, and his CV boasted experience working under three previous Prime Ministers. When he moved into Number 10, he was a 50-year-old bachelor, make of that what you will, having moved out from living with his sister. 
Unfortunately, Drummond was not around for long, as one day, when he was making his way back from the bank in Charing Cross, he was set upon by an assassin who mistook him for the Prime Minister Robert Peel, and was shot dead in the street. A sad end to somebody the papers damned by faint praise, calling him as good and inoffensive a man as ever had lived. The upper residential parts of Downing Street were shut up, and whilst the ground floor remained a busy office for the government and the Prime Minister, Downing Street as a home fell into disuse. But what was coming was an era of change in British politics, with an overhaul in voting rights and far fewer lords and dukes as Prime Minister. From the days of Walpole, Downing Street was treated as a sometime London pad and perk. But with the advent of modern politics, it would become the official residence of the Prime Minister at last. We leave this episode just as Downing Street, as we know it now, was coming into its own. From the latter part of the 19th century, almost every Prime Minister would make it their home, from the Victorian era, through the wars and the founding of the welfare state, to the power struggles of the Blair years and beyond. But those are stories for another day. Thank you for listening to Fierce City, telling the tales of our very favourite city in the world and home, London. If you like our podcast, then please subscribe or write us a review. You can also email us at londonhistorypodcast at gmail.com if you want to get in touch or let us know what topics you would be interested to hear about. Fierce City was written and produced by the two voices you have heard. Thank you for listening. <laughs>